welcome everyone to episode number 18 of the VR Pimp Podcast. I'm your host, Scotty Velvet, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with my good friend Telly from VR Fan Service. Telly has been producing VR porn content for a few years now, and he always has a lot of interesting opinions and first-hand knowledge to share. In our discussion, Telly gives an update on the current production status in California and talks about the new protocols that he is planning to implement in response to the pandemic. And then we continue along that line and take a deeper dive into the details of a typical VR porn shoot. The timing, the cost, we kind of go through the whole shooting process step by step from beginning to end. And as part of that, Telly shares his views on the new multicam feature that some VR porn sites have been experimenting with recently. Before we get started with the interview, I know it's been quite a while since my last podcast episode. I spent most of 2019 working on a related project that I was hoping to launch a few months ago, but like most everything else, it has been delayed. I am aiming to have things ready by the end of this year, so hopefully I'll have some news to share on that project in the not-too-distant future. Okay, with that, let's get to my interview with Telly from VR Fan Service. Can you give us an update on the status of production in California? All right. Now that FSC has released their guidelines, uh, FSC Free Speech Coalition, they released their preliminary guidelines for how to deal with adult production in the time of the coronavirus. We've been able to draft our own protocols for how to create content safely and while adhering to social distance practices uh, on set need be, but ultimately it comes down to testing. That's the most important thing. So we adhere to a 48-hour test protocol, which means that performers, uh, in addition to getting an STI panel to be cleared for work, we also require that they provide a 48-hour, uh, within 48-hour clearance from uh, to be COVID-free. Um, that's something that we're covering for talent as well as crew, because while it costs more money now to produce the content, ultimately we're just talking about people's safety and comfort, and that's the most important thing. So, you know, an additional $35 per person, that's it's a nominal fee to make sure that everybody feels safe. But well, now that we have protocols in place, uh, so long as performers are willing and able to work, we're uh, happy to work with anybody. And we have uh, shoots scheduled. So looking forward to that. You do. So you already have things scheduled coming up within weeks, days? Within a week, we have a scheduled shoot. Um, and then I think we also have another one. Me personally, I have another one at the end of the month. And we're trying to see what else we can uh, put together in between. Uh, a lot of it is just making sure that we are as open and transparent about our processes once a performer gets on set with either her agent or his agent or themselves. And I think that's really all we can do. And if uh, people are ready to work and willing to work and they agree to the protocols that we set forth um, and are confident in them, then I'm more than happy to work with uh, people and get back to life, I guess. So the testing part of it's really not going to affect the timing of how long it takes to create or how long it takes to produce a scene? It actually might. reason being is that now within our own protocol guidelines, we're more stringent on uh, keeping a clean set. We've, I can only speak for myself personally. We've always strived to have a clean set. It's the most important thing because ultimately we're talking about uh, humans in close contact, close proximity. So just making sure that the sanitary uh, nature of our environment is at the highest level possible. So now with that, we're, before 
any performer talent comes on set, my crew and I will conduct uh, thorough cleanings of all areas using uh, products that are safe uh, for humans, but also kills viruses. Um, that has to be done first and foremost of the day. So that's going to be at another hour or so to our schedule. Um, but you know, again, we're just trying to make sure people are safe. Uh, with regards to productions, nowadays with a 48-hour test, I don't foresee us ever shooting back-to-back days uh, because at that point, it's um, there's chances of reinfection or getting infected while outside of set. Uh, so now that we have to spread out our shoot schedule, that means that we are able, uh, unable to shoot as many if need be. Um, and I believe that goes for the same too for talent. If they ha- shoot today, suppose they're supposedly, uh, would have to take a day off and then retest, shoot, and so on and so forth. So it's, um, it will make it a little more difficult to book talent. But again, we're just trying to make sure that we're doing the best we can to provide a safe, clean environment that people work in. So the timing of it is interesting, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today, is for a normal shoot, how long does it take and what the steps are from beginning to end? So on average, when you conceptualize a scene and then you go to book talent to when you actually have that scene released, how many weeks is that normally? I guess it depends on how diligent I am at editing, because that's usually the, the biggest headache for me. Um, I guess it all depends on the, the conception of the idea. Uh, we personally like to create an idea before we book talent, uh, because that way we are crafting the scenario and then trying to find the best fit versus others who might pick talent and then try to build something around them. I am not really sure that's the best way for us because uh, we're ultimately trying to build an experience. Um, and if a model has attributes that lend themselves to that experience or that we know has talents that would make this experience uh, much more immersive, uh, for lack of a better word, then uh, that's what we'll go for. So with that, creating the, the idea a little bit of time but let's imagine we already have an idea and now we're booking talent between booking talent and shooting we could probably do that within a week because then we also have to schedule for location which is uh, another aspect of it now with covid we have to make sure that the location is clean we have to make sure that the people who uh, own or manage the location are also tested if they desire to be on set so now that's adding uh, more time to our timeline so let's say it might take a week to get all that together make sure we have all the cleaning supplies necessary as well as all the supplies to actually shoot content. Now, shoot day happens. We usually like to start around maybe 10 o'clock or so and get done by about five. So that's that's about our average day for a boy-girl shoot. So you can do it a week out basically between booking the talent and the, the location. You give yourself about a week normally? Yeah, yeah. It, for us... And our team, we give ourselves about a week because my crew, it's a crew of two plus myself. So making sure that everybody's available and ready to work, that's also part of the scheduling. Um, some shooters uh, work alone. Sometimes they're their own male talent. So that limits the variables within their scheduling. E- each crew is different. So different strokes, different folks. And you say you get there and work 10 to 5. Is that when the talent is there and you have to get there to set up before that? We'll, we'll always get there before the talent. 
Um, talent will, will schedule for maybe around like 11 o'clock. Male talent might come in around 12 o'clock. Uh, we like to stagger that out so that um, at least uh, each person can sign all the paperwork and documents necessary to create uh, an adult production. But now with uh, the cleaning and everything, we might have to show up a little bit earlier just to make sure that it, it's up to our standards. So yeah, there's that. Uh, we stagger talent. We'll probably start filming maybe around one o'clock or so. And then by around four o'clock, we should be finished for a boy-girl scene. And then by five o'clock, we're done cleaning up the location and ready to head home. Now, when they arrive, are you going over the script with them and, you know, basically going through what you're going to do for the day? So again, most of our shoots uh, start with the idea for what the scene is before the talent is considered. So that way, when we pick talent, we're also able to provide uh, script details, um, some storyboard ideas if we have them drawn out for uh, the talent to review before they come on set. And then also while they're filling out paperwork, we can bring them up to speed if they weren't able to, to read script or uh, directions. So there are a couple moments within that, that week of pre-production as well as the first few hours of production to go over with talent so that everybody's on board with what we're shooting that day. So in your setup, I suppose it's difficult if you have to record in multiple locations within that one location, or do you try to like keep it centralized in one room? I guess it depends on the shoot. Uh, that might speak to a lot of uh, why a lot of VR productions started out initially with one person lying down on a bed. It's uh, There's a lot more gear than would normally uh, be in a 2D productions. So with a larger gear, with a larger footprint of the, or camera rig, uh, moving it is kind of a pain in the ass. So it's always nice to find a location that has multiple spots and areas that we can utilize without having to traverse stairs or um, even separate buildings. So we try to book a location that is multifaceted, that we can get different things out of um, for that one scene so that it maximizes the user's experience as well as our how much we're getting back for our location cost. How long does that initial setup take for you? Maybe about a half an hour or so. Uh, a lot of it's just basic grip gear. You set up your lights, um, make sure that the, the camera rig is operating correctly. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, it just kind of becomes old hat. Yeah, I assume you're a lot faster now than you were when you started. Uh, I guess it depends on the day and if I've had my coffee. Okay, so you get there, you got everything set up, and I we were talking about this earlier with the difference of the, the video recording equipment and the audio equipment. Now that's two separate things you got to deal with, right? Correct, yeah. So I guess a lot of today's 2D porn are usually filmed gonzo style with a single camera, um, and doing it like that, nothing wrong with it. Um, it's probably a very efficient way to shoot. You have a camera, there's a microphone attached to it, you do your thing, call it a day. VR is a lot more technical. Um, and then with that too, since you're trying to replicate, uh, I guess, real life, you have to use different tools and a lot more post-production. So for our productions, we use a camera. It has an audio device. It has microphones in it. But uh, we also use uh, H3 VR for ambisonics, uh, something that I'm trying to play with 
that's one recording device. Sometimes we'll use uh, binaural lavalier microphones or even a binaural microphone just to see what other effects we can get. And then all that has to come together in post-production. So the, while filming this, not only are we monitoring uh, what's in front of the camera, not only are we monitoring uh, the audio levels on a separate recording device or two separate recording devices, but and now when you get into things like multicam, now you're doing that multiplied by how many other cameras you're utilizing at a time. And um, I think the max we did was two multi-cameras uh, accompanying our primary. So now you're talking about two, two additional systems that each have their own issues. You know, if you're using GoPros and you have to monitor it via um, like an iPhone device, sometimes the Wi-Fi is spotty, sometimes you get interference on your connections. Um, if you're monitoring with... Uh, a DSLR camera or a recording with a DSLR camera for the secondary. Now you have to figure out, well, how do I monitor that without being in the shot? So um, if you've seen some of our multicam footage for uh, sex like real originals, you'll see gear and tripods in it. So when we crafted that scenario, we crafted it with a story that made sense for seeing the gear. Uh, that way we wouldn't be limited by trying to make a clean set where none of these things existed. Okay, you mentioned multicam. I got to let you go give your speech about it. I, I don't have much of an opinion about it, but uh, for me personally, I can say this. I don't really like it. I, I love mirrors in scenes. Uh, I love mirrors in real life, so I love them in scenes too. But the multicam, uh, I'm not really on board with it yet, but I'll let you speak your piece. Totally. So uh, working with SLR was a great opportunity because at that point, we were we had the funding to try new things. And a lot of VR porn struggles with funding. Um, you have people who don't want to pay for it. They only want to watch the previews and then complain about it on Oculus NSFW. So that's problematic. If you want to see change in the content, then maybe you should support independent content creators. And I see VR fan service as one of those because ultimately I'm not going to work for wanks. I'm not going to work for bangers. Although, you know, I, I love these companies too not going to work for Naughty America. And those are the only people that are getting any attention on Oculus NSFW. So at the end of the day, if you're complaining why content all looks the same, it's probably being shot by the same people. So maybe you should spread that money around. But that's a totally different story. With multicam, though, uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about how it breaks you out of immersiveness. It is not the same as real life. But I think that a lot of people who say these things, and when the first multicam scene came out, if people were saying it about it then, they probably didn't watch the scene because we specifically explained why you're seeing these things. Uh, the concept for the first multicam scene with Bunny Colby is this is the future. This is a casting director reviewing his recordings through an AR device. And what this model is coming in for is she's getting her body scanned for, for her avatar and her likeness to be licensed. So that's why we have multicams. That's why you as a person can view it is because you have an AR device on that allows you to see it. So our, our whole premise is that you are in the future. So what would future porn look like? And I think by taking yourself away from what reality is to you and then thinking about, well, what could this be down the road? It allows more for creativity, freedom of expression, exploration, and the ability to see new shit. The, my 
concept for multicams comes a little bit from hentai, like um, the manga hentai, where you'll see a scene happen and you'll have x-ray vision and you'll see it from multiple angles at the same time. And I've always thought, well, you know, we have all this dead space if you're doing a top-down doggy style shot. What can we do? Because, you know, I would like to see her face. I would like to see the insertion shot. I would like to see all the other shots that we're so accustomed to in flat 2D porn. Um, but why aren't they there? And what reason or what other creative way can we try to explore using this canvas? I come from like an art background. And with that, you see things like, like impressionism as an art movement. You know, before that, everybody was just trying to make super realistic paintings of uh, heroic figures from ancient Greek times. During the Impressionists, they were more spontaneous and fluid and created things that, while not perfectly rendered with, I guess, scientific precision, it's about conveying a feeling of emotion that is particular to one person's reality in that moment. And that's kind of some of the reasoning behind multicam, is it doesn't have to be your exact perspective because everybody has different perspectives. And I also take a little bit of that from cubism, where uh, Picasso, you're seeing a person's face from multiple angles at the same time. And people revolted at, at stuff like that because they were like, this is not how a human being looks, but this is art. Um, and regardless of if it's porn, if it's people fucking, or if it's people performing Shakespeare, uh, you should be able to interpret art differently and try new things without being limited to the way it's always been done. So that is my defense of VR porn uh, with multicam. And regardless of what people complain about, seeing other producers and directors add uh, multicam to their footage and how some others are doing really well with it, stylistically wise, I don't feel bad. I think that the ability to try new things, um, having Sex Like Real be able to finance trying new things, that allows VR porn to grow, or just VR in general. Because if we get stuck on the way it's always been, it gets stale. And I think people are starting to feel that it's already stale. So if we're not taking risks, then really, what are we doing here? Well, I think everybody's happy to see studios experiment with new things like that. But I know there's been some negative feedback. Overall, what do you think the feedback's been positive or negative? Well, it's always the angry voices that are the loudest. So people complain about it, but I'm seeing studios pop up. I'm seeing studios still exist while using multicam. So obviously somebody's paying for it. And at the end of the day, that's really the consumer that drives the market. So I mean, people can complain all they want on Reddit or whatever, but if money is moving in that direction, then that's the direction things go. So yeah, I guess that's the, that's the best response I can have. Well, on the subject of cameras, so with multicam, you've got two different setups. I assume the second camera, the quality is not what you have with the main camera. Is that, you I mean, you're not spending all the money on that extra camera that's a recording the face or whatever it's recording? It really depends. Um, so when we did that first multicam shot, we did it with two GoPros, uh, one for the face, one for the side. Now, uh, for the side shots, I'm using a DSLR. I, I like the Lumix, so the G85 for that. And it, it gives a better image quality, picture quality. And I think the lack of that fisheye distortion also helps too. Uh, I don't mind the fisheye on the face, so that's why I'm still keeping the GoPro in the front. 
but I have seen somebody else's multicam where that front shot or that that company was only using one uh, multicam angle, but they were using a DSLR and it looked great. Um, so we're blending two things. We're blending VR 180 with VR cameras as well as uh, old school flat 2D productions. Um, and I don't see a problem with that. I think by trying these new things is the only way we're going to find what people like. Do you see it where you'll be able to switch your point of view from one camera to the other? Is that already a thing or is that coming? Oh, that's been uh, discussed. And I believe uh, Sex Like Reels uh, DOVR player has the ability to do that. We just haven't produced it yet because then you'll need two uh, VR cameras. Um, and right now with COVID shutting down, uh, a whole bunch of shipping supply lines. It's becoming harder to get equipment. One of my K1 uh, cameras died. So at that point, I'm kind of stuck without a camera, but I'm hoping everything comes in by the time I have to shoot. So we'll see how that goes. And do you see the K2 Pro becoming kind of the standard camera uh, in the future here? I know a lot of people are using it already. I would say yes, but I'm also open to other competitors i feel that uh since ye pulled out of the vr 180 market since other camera manufacturers larger scale ones such as nikons and the canons aren't uh, entering the market that kind of makes me a little sad of course but also uh makes me cautious as how the market is being perceived outside of adult and with that too uh, having tried the k2 i think that while I appreciate a native 59.94 recording and while I appreciate the larger, the larger picture size that we can play with. So now we can create a good 5k image. The body size that it is bloated from, uh, when compared to the K1, it's, there, there are a lot of things to work out because now you have this large camera body that's in male performer's face and it requires him to bend back more, which then creates uh, the body distortion that people always refer to as giraffe neck. So those are all things that we have to come into play. Um, you know, companies like Check VR they use GoPros still, so they're able to get that thing flatter to someone's face uh, versus K2, which yeah, you're going to have to arch your back if you want the standard shot. So nowadays we're trying to play around with. Not necessarily recreating real, but trying to make your experience more evocative and um, uh, for lack of a better word, immersive to where you are there with the person and maybe you're not as cognitively aware of where your body is in relation to the image you are seeing. And when you're setting up the camera for the scenes, are there is there a certain sequence of positions that's easier to go through when you're shooting VR because of how you set up the camera, or is it always different? I think it really depends on the scenario. Uh, most of the stuff that we've shot recently, it's uh, from the perspective of someone sitting down, just because most of our lives were sitting on our asses. So you're in a computer chair at work or you're in a car or wherever. So it's a comfortable position. And we're also trying to take into account how people are viewing the content. A lot of people seem to view porn from a seated position, uh, not so much uh, mimicking what they are seeing. Uh, so when we do standing positions, a lot of people won't really stand. 
they're still going to be sitting down. So at that point, it's like, do I really need to see the whole body while you're standing? Or do you just need to feel like you're standing in that moment? So how we end up or uh, how we start isn't set in stone, but people seem to have a lot of positions that they like. So yeah, of course, you're going to do some of those standing positions. You're going to do your missionary positions, your doggy style position, um, your uh, cowgirl position, your seated blowjob position. Uh, so there, there are certain deliverables that people expect and some produ- some production companies actually have a list of things that they want to see to fulfill your contract so you have to hit those marks if you want to get paid and that's why a lot of times the the content that comes out does seem formulaic i see i was always wondering about the photography do you have somebody taking photos while the scene is taking place or is that like a separate allotted time where they come in and do the photography so i think photography still photography has kind of suffered due to the economics of porn especially on our side for the vr side Um, i can't speak explicitly about other production companies because i know a lot of people who are shooting vr porn they've shot 2d porn for decades now so The photography aspect is just part and parcel of what they do. But us personally, to limit costs, um, we don't have a dedicated photographer. We have the equipment. We'll take photos. But I'm also on the fence about that. I know that it makes a great promotional tool. But as to what the experience is, I don't think it is representative of it, which is why I, I try and get whatever company I'm working for to use screenshots from the actual content. Because I'm a really shitty photographer, so the last thing I want to do is spend all this time making VR content and have it destroyed by a really bad photo, which I have done numerous times. So yeah, there's that. Yeah, but uh, having a dedicated photographer, if you are not one, comes at its own expense. And then with people spending less money for adult content, that's just uh, something that was... Unfortunate, we had to. Uh, fortunately, we had to throw that by the wayside. Oh, oh, sorry. And to answer your question about as to how that goes within the scene, um, I've been privileged enough to work on sets for other VR shooters as well. Everybody's different. Ooh, some people like to use it in the beginning to run through the scene with the performers so that they know exactly what positions they're trying to go through, uh, what angles they want to get. Um, others will do it at the end so that the photos are consistent with what actually was shot. I, I forgot somewhere I saw on Oculus NSFW that uh, people were complaining that not only did the title card's name as well as the photo suggest something about having come on the, the fresh makeup, but when they viewed the content, it was totally different scenario from what was uh, alluded to in the promo piece. So that kind of stuff happens a lot when you are taking photos before you actually shoot your content but if anything uh, one similarity is that when the pop shot happens that's usually when the photos for that part takes place so you're on set you've got everything set up and you mentioned filming for three or four hours to i guess produce what's average uh, 30 minute scene so are you doing multiple takes or is it just a matter of taking time to set up the camera in different positions It's a little of everything. With a boy-girl scene, you might have multiple takes depending on the talent. Sometimes talent aren't comfortable emoting correctly to the camera. So that's why 
even if they're looking at you um, by looking directly at the camera, you won't get that uh, expressiveness on the face. So sometimes things like that need to be discussed. We are fortunate to have an ex performer on our set who handles uh, a little bit of intimacy coaching and as well as HR uh, that can work with the models as to how to best emote for VR. So some of that, there is some of that talk in between, but also when dealing with human bodies and uh, asking the human body to do certain things at certain times, especially for male talent, sometimes you'll have days where the body doesn't want to cooperate. So you have to factor that into plus it's hard to, expect people to convey a full amount of intimacy in vr when it's probably the most unsexy way to produce porn because you have this thing in front of your face so the male talent doesn't see anything the female talent has to project and act towards basically wally for about a whole day and still convey that sense of presence and desire and um, that intimacy so there's a lot of things to ask from from both sides, from talent side and production side. So we account for time delays. And also there's cleanliness issues that happen that need to be addressed uh, at that time. So those things, um, breaks in between because everybody should have a break. So the human aspect has to come into play and that human aspect creates a longer uh, you mentioned the crew. I, I forgot to write that on my list of questions. How many people are on your crew and what are their, you know, what are they doing there? VR fan service runs a crew of three. Myself, which serves as lead director. Okay, I guess key grip, director of photography, cameraman, lighting person. Yeah. Uh, after that, there is our principal AD who manages now COVID protocols, paperwork, and cleanliness on set. And let's see here. We also have our, I guess we would call her our HR person, but she's also a model liaison. So she handles uh, any model issues as well as assisting me while the filming is happening. One thing I was going to ask you before we go any further is cost of your equipment. I know some people want to get into producing VR porn. What would you say for a professional studio? The cost is including the camera, your audio stuff, your lighting. Can you give a, a round figure on how much you got into it? Jeez, I would have to pull up my credit card statements. Uh, if you want to film porn, you could film it on your iPhone and you'd create content, 2D content that would be fine for anybody. Um, you'd be able to monetize that quickly because there are a lot of avenues to do so. So that would probably be any budding pornographer's best bet for a quick turnaround. When you start to get into things like VR, uh, I feel like even the consumer base doesn't really appreciate the cost and time that it takes, which, you know, it's a good thing that you have your podcast to illuminate that. So your hardware costs. Um, so the hardware costs, if you were if you were to go for the top of line camera at the moment, which is a K2 Pro uh, pre-production edition, that it, in alone is $6,000 for one camera. And then with that, to control a K2, you'll probably need two iPads. So with that, now you have like almost another grand. So you're about $7,000 in. And then with that, you also want to think about your audio equipment. So now you have to buy a microphone that's about $300. You have to have 
equipment to monitor that. So you might have an iPod lying around, maybe a hundred bucks. And now you have to have a thing to put the, the camera, this $7,000 camera equipment on. So now you have to think about things like uh, stands or some people even use cranes. So a crane is maybe like 150 bucks, has to sit on a tripod that might be about $400. That's if you want to put it on a dolly, that's another hundred dollars. Let's see here. Okay, how how deep does this rabbit hole go? Now you have to think <laughs> about your lighting. Well, you could go for uh, a cheap three point lighting system, maybe run you about five hundred dollars to get that. Now that's only the gear on set on that day. If you wanted to shoot production, which I think it should be done, where you're concerned about the health and safety and well being of others, now you're talking about expendables, things like. Uh, sanitary wipes, towels, um, cleaning products, cleaning solutions. Um, you also have to feed people. So you, now you have to talk about craft services. So all of these costs start to add up. And that's only for the day you are shooting. You're not even considering things like model costs. Um, we strive to pay performers equally, uh, as equally as possible. So our base rate for a boy girl for female talent will pay a thousand dollars for male talent will pay six hundred dollars and that's not including agency fees if it's an agency model they want a cut too so it's usually like an extra hundred bucks and now with covid protocols we have to pay for those tests too so now we're adding on the cost to test everybody on set that's our crew as well as the models for their covid tests so that's I don't know how many more hundreds of dollars. And that's only for that one day. So now you have your content. Now you have to figure out a way to edit it. Well, you can't edit it on a basic computer. So now you'll need a, it's in bare minimum, an i7 7700K. You'll need at least a, a 1080 graphics card, maybe a 1070. You can get away with that. So you're buying a computer that's probably around $3,000 if you were to buy it out the box. If you were to build it, maybe two grand. Now, you need software to do this stuff. Uh, one of the latest leading VR post-production software, it's about $299 uh, a month or something. So there's that. Now, you have to also buy Adobe Creative Cloud. So all of these expenses come up when you're creating VR content. And sure, you could say that if you were to shoot multiple times within a month, you are stretching out the cost for the software and the hardware. But you also have to think if you're shooting multiple times a month, that's multiple times a month you have to spend expendables, such as cleaning equipment, all that kind of stuff. Multiple times a month, you have to also pay for model fees and then everything else as well as feeding. So yeah, it's, it's pretty pricey. And when people complain about paying, I don't know, how much uh, an SLR membership is, uh, premium membership is, or how much uh, a VR bangers or a Wangs membership is, you got to realize that you are getting value for your money, regardless of who you spend it with. And if this is a venture that you think has legs, if you think VR porn has legs and is the future, then the only way it remains that way is to put money in the game. Have you ever thought about just getting like uh, Insta360 Evo or the Views XR? And a little light and just going and making some amateur style VR? I mean, I've, I've thought about it. And I know that there are a lot of uh, production, uh, like independent producers who do things like that. Um, however, as time has progressed, I feel like those cameras, as good as, as good as they are for the value, 
ultimately lack certain things that people have become accustomed to certain field of view certain level of um, color depth uh, a lot of these the smaller cameras the their sensors don't lack uh, they lack the dynamic range within your colors so um, your darks will be extremely dark or crushed um, the lights will be extremely blown out so uh, the ability to fine-tune your product is less on those platforms and because they're consumer grade um, if you go for a higher-end production or you people are financing a higher end production, then they want the best quality that their money can buy. And uh, with that, you will need uh, a better dynamic range. You will need more details in other highlights and your lowlights. And yeah, same thing for the consumer. At a certain point when they see a certain level of graininess within your, your final product, they're asking themselves, why am I paying for this when I can spend the same amount of money to get that? Colin Roundtree mentioned this from Wasteland, that he has to turn off the air conditioning. So if that's an issue, does it often, I, you have lights in there, I assume it's going to get pretty hot on set. Is that a problem? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of times when we film, we'll blast the AC in the beginning, get it really cold, and then turn it off. The reason being is uh, now with the microphones that we use, and I guess even standard microphones, you, you will pick up that low-level hum. And when you go into post-production to remove that, you're also removing a lot of other audio data. So then you get like a tinny sound. With uh, our microphones, there are some limiters that we can use on it, but it's always best to get as much data, whether it be visual or audio, as possible uh, so that when you get it into post-production, you have more to work with. Yeah, uh, no, totally. It makes sense. Uh, we do the same thing, too. One way to combat the heat is we use all LED lighting versus other companies that might use something like fluorescent tubing, such as Kino Flows. Uh, my personal favorite as far as lighting solutions is Quasar Science. They make these awesome LED tubes that don't put out as much heat, don't use as much energy, are portable. They can also fit in as practical lighting. So we've used those in, uh, since the beginning. When you set up the cameras, do you have something you use now to keep it consistent in each position? Do you have any type of measurement you do? I know you mentioned before you use a bubble level. Is there like a standardized approach you take to certain positions now with the camera setup? That's a good question. It's actually something that plagues, I guess, most VR shooting companies. Uh, and if you were to listen to Oculus NSFW, the only company that always gets it right is check VR. But but with that, angles are going to be unique, a unique problem per scenario as well as per editor. So when when a consumer sees the final product, they see an advertisement for a new scene, they imagine that one person made everything from start to finish. And that is not always the case. So if you were to think about it from the production side actually being on set with a camera so you have multiple different cameras that have multiple different fields of view and different glass bends light differently so there are certain levels of distortion that are inherent with uh, specific cameras and not only that uh, certain cameras like zcam's k1 pro there are three different versions of that so each lens profile is different so a shooter could, could use the same camera with two different lenses and then inaccurately position 
that camera for what happens in post-processing. So a lot of people complaining have always talked about things like scaling issues and distance and uh, giraffe arms and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they're imagining that when I press record, I see exactly what it's going to look like at the end. And only because most people, when they think of production, they're thinking about 2D production with maybe a DSLR. So when you press record and you see on the little monitor, that's exactly what you're going to get unless you cut a color grade it. So with VR porn, especially with a K2 that's out now, all I see is a fisheye. And I have to look at the male talent's body. I have to look at the female talent's body, where those things are positioned in relation to one another, where the camera is positioned in relation to the body. And then also try and remember when I throw this into the editing program, how that will uh, get warped from a fisheye into an echo rectangular projection. And with that too, each person's settings can be different. Um, I've gotten settings from manufacturers for different cameras, different camera profiles versus uh, production companies who use their own profiles. And there are varying degrees of differences, things like your depth of field, your your uh, distance between both eyes, your, um, the term is escaping, uh, interocular distance, uh, or coaxial distance. So all of these things come into play with the final product. And even if I were to shoot it perfectly, depending on how it is de-warped from fisheye to echo-rectangular, could be the difference between a really comfortable experience and a really horrible experience. So those are things to consider. But, you know, most people just, they eat the food, but they don't really know how it's made. All right. So you've gone through the shoot, no problems whatsoever, I'm sure. And you get to the end of the day, perfect pop shot. You wrap things up. Now, are you, like, driving back, just hoping things are going to be what you think they're going to be or is there any like check that you do while you're still on the uh, location to make sure you got everything wow okay so that's a great question yeah so we're breaking down for about an hour at this point cutting checks making sure that uh, everybody's experience was um you know a good one uh, that's my first and foremost priority of uh, doing this because the people that we share time with is, and the time that we share together is the most important thing. Um, if people are having a bad experience, then, and it's, well, if people are having a bad experience and it's based off of something that I have done or my crew have done or something we could improve upon, then definitely it's something we need to address. So it's at that time after we're talking, how was the experience and just getting a temperature for what we can do to improve or if not, just uh, hoping we can create a good connection to work together later down the line so after that as i'm going home totally every time i film something is the most stressful thing for me i am not a filmmaker i am not uh nor have i ever been somebody who wanted to create videos or feel the need to impose my vision on anything but here i am so i've shot something and all i am doing is praying that the cards didn't uh, get corrupted or Sometimes you, before when we were dealing with separate cameras where the, there might be sync issues, maybe one camera was recording and another camera wasn't. That's happened a lot. 
um, where were the lenses cleaned as always? Did somebody touch the lens and I didn't see it? So now there's a big blurry spot. I don't know. And these are all these things that I will only know when I plug that card in to the, the computer and then see what the final footage looks like. So that whole process after filming is probably the most stressful for me. So if you were to think about a timeline for uh, how long it takes to create content, everything for the planning and all that kind of stuff, that's very easy. It's straightforward. Shooting it, it's pretty much straightforward for most of the time. But the editing it is where the real headache comes. And um, me personally, it's probably the hardest thing I struggle with because I really don't want to see all the imperfections that I feel like I could have done better on. So I'm sitting over here trying to watch this thing and I'm just hating the whole process of it. Um, And if we were talking about the multicam stuff, uh, Bunny Colby's scene, there were actually a lot of technical issues that uh, happened and that camera started freaking out at certain parts and um, all of a sudden, one side of the camera or one lens was recording at a different frame rate setting than the other. No idea why. Not sure if it was, uh, I believe it was an in-body issue, in-the-camera body issue. But one side was recording at a variable frame rate. The other side was uh, recording at a constant frame rate. So people were, well, when I was uh, editing it, I noticed that things were off. So I had to go in manually frame by frame and then readjust things, which is why on that scene specifically, we uh, implemented some uh, a little post-production work to where it looks like the camera is glitching out. Uh, you as a viewer, you're seeing like scan lines and a little bit of glitch uh, artifacts. And I was using that to transition between certain points where I had to fix uh, the video so that it synced up correctly. So yeah, the, that scene in and of itself took about two weeks to edit to account for the issues and as well as just doing something that's never been done before. So yeah, that one took quite some time. So to answer your question, yeah, it's a, it's a pain in the ass the whole process through and it's even worse after you're done because who knows, maybe the camera stopped recording when that pop shot happened. Things, things uh, have happened similar and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they happen again in the future. Well, I can imagine adding that second camera really adds a lot of extra time to the post-processing part. But like, if you didn't have that multi-cam, if it was just a single cam shot, how long would it take you normally in post-processing? Oh, no, that's that, that's exactly what I'm getting at. So with a most people aren't familiar with VR cameras. So a VR camera does not record your final echo rectangular or even fisheye image to one video file. The K1 Pro, which I guess was sort of still standard, um, records to two independent cards, and each card controls one eye. It's just that for that first scene and even some other subsequent scenes, the the camera would have uh, issues where all of a sudden, I don't know if it was a heat issue on the camera or something, where one eye would record at a different frame rate setting than another. Usually what happened at the end, towards the end of a shoot, which sucks because that's a pop shot. And that was an issue that you'd never experienced before. You would never expect. But now that it happens, that's your primary footage. That's not even including the multicam, uh, the, the additional cameras to create a multicam experience. And that's just inherent with filming VR porn because even the K2 films to two separate cards. 
So while you could be monitoring one eye, the other eye could be taking a shit and you wouldn't know it, which is why with the K2, now you have to monitor on two different iPads. So you take every problem you have with 2D porn, you multiply it by two, and then you compound that uh, by the amount of frames that we shoot now compared to standard 2D, 2D porn. Somebody, I want to say it was uh, Mike from VR Bangers, and at the expo show in LA, they were talking about taking a, a VR scene and putting it out maybe as a 2D scene, and they said you have to choose one of the lenses to use, and they said it had to be the left. I can't remember if it was the left or the right for some reason. Does that make sense to you? Uh, yeah, it kind of depends. Um, so something that I still struggle with too with when directing talent is telling them which eye to look into. And sometimes choosing an eye isn't actually the best way to go about it. Nowadays, I'm just telling the performer to look dead center in between the camera lenses to get the best image possible. So what he's referring to is uh, turning a, the 3D 180 or VR 180 footage into 2D. And yeah, he is pretty much correct because uh, as I said, when the camera records, it's one eye per card and you just have to pick an eye, take that footage and then uh, break that from fisheye to an uh, equirectangular image that fits uh, your standard 2D format. If you pull the eye that the performer is not looking into, then it almost looks like she's looking over your shoulder uh, when viewed 2D. So that would give a lot of people a very different impression. I mean, it might be good for like femdom, uh, where femdom is ignoring you. I mean, some people like that type of uh, content, but I don't think that's for everybody. Would you say once you start post-processing, that you can have a scene ready to be released in a week or so? I would say about a week. Um, and it really depends on the camera, too. So let's say the K1 Pro. Everybody was shooting on the K1 Pro. They still are predominantly. And yet the final product that people see is a, basically a 60 frames per second uh, video file. But the K1 Pro does not shoot 60 frames per second. So with that, there is an upconverting process, and that process takes sometimes maybe in a whole day, depending just on render time alone. So you you could have spent, let's say, two days, three days editing a very standard scene, but you still have to convert that that file to fifty nine point nine four. So then some people use uh, Adobe Media Encoder to do this. Some people use separate software to do this, and that all depends. But it usually takes a good deal amount of time 10 hours minimum and then now when people are expecting h.265 that takes an extreme amount of time even straight out of adobe media encoder because that's not a, an encoding process that utilizes the gpu that's 100 percent cpu so unless you're using something maybe like a thread ripper although i'm not sure the amd chipset is uh, optimized for adobe media encoder it'll still take a long time. So while the meat and potatoes of editing is simple enough to do, color grading simple enough to do, you still have to consider your render times. Okay. Well, there you have it. So simple. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, you asked me about the technical stuff, and I'm like, nobody's going to want to listen to this because it's very technical and it's very boring. Well, I was following along till that last part. 
then you went over my head a little bit. Well, at least we know your limit. It's okay. And I'm glad. Do you have any scenes coming up that you want to promote? Um, we did just launch a couple of them. So let's see here. I'll start with uh, SLR. We released uh, an Amelia Onyx solo. Please be nice. I don't know. Uh, if anything, remember, performers are human beings. They read comments too. So that goes without saying for anything that I create. Um, if there's ever an issue with uh, visual clarity or quality, please take a shit on me. We'll leave performers out of it. So there's that. Same thing uh, we also have uh, for VR fan service. We have two scenes from Lum. Uh, she's an alt porn award winner, uh, I believe multiple times. Absolutely fantastic performer. Really fun cosplay scene as Princess Peach we did with her. Uh, we also did a GFE experience right before lockdown. So if you, you want to remember what it was like eating outside the noise and traffic of LA, there you go. And then she'll take you home and do a solo toy show. It, it was it, it's a fun experience because it doesn't look like your standard typical porn locations. It doesn't look like your standard typical porn setup because uh, VR fan service tries to do what it says, uh, service the fans by creating intimate experiences with independent performers. So please check it out. Enjoy it. Let me know what you think. And yeah, please don't take a shit on my photography skills. I am horrible with that and I am trying to do better. So don't judge a book by its title card. Yes. I want to take a wild stab at this and say, if you had to choose one niche only one that you could film in, you would choose cosplay. Would I be right? E yes and no. Um, yes, because it's fun. No, because it takes a lot of work. Um, and what we try to do is a little different from, I guess, other companies that do cosplay porn is that we try to have uh, our performers actually be into cosplay, actually understand the characters, or at least have an understanding of the characters. And when we do cosplay stuff, we like to work with content creators or performers who can build their own cosplays. Or if it's something that we build, it has to be an IP that we know, understand, or and are comfortable with. Um, I get that other companies who create cosplay content are uh, trying to create a large body of content. So ultimately, they don't have as much time. They have way more money than us, so they definitely have the resources. Um, but that's probably why a lot of their shit looks like it's off the rack, because it is off the rack. And if you're only casting for the biggest name on Pornhub and you're just looking by their model rankings, then of course you're kind of taking a gamble uh, in supposing that this performer knows uh, about the content and the costume that she's putting on. So, you know, no, no real disrespect to, to people with money. And all that kind of stuff. But yeah, no, we enjoy anime. We enjoy cosplay. So we like to work with performers who enjoy cosplay and enjoy anime as much as we do. But if there's if there's a, a niche or a genre that I would love to work in, it's more of the, I guess you would call it alternative side of porn. Um, uh, we constantly go to alt porn awards. Uh, we love that space. It's very open um and friendly space with a lot of fantastic performers that 
most mainstream porn consumers would never see because they are not being booked by wanks vr or naughty america or vr bangers um and that's something that we feel it does a disservice to the industry it kind of creates a very myopic way to view porn and people and i also feel that the consumers are missing out on that demographic um which is fine you know by all means let let Naughty America and all the rest of them go pick up regular agency girls. We want to work with independent content creators who know themselves, know their brand, and have their own particular way of doing things. Well, I think you knew quite well if you started an alt porn VR porn site. That that sounds like something that would really be a hit right now. Oh, there you go. Uh, you heard it first. That's what we're doing. <laughs> well, you're not going to be known for that. You're going to be known for being the multi-cam pioneer. I have to find somebody to change the Wikipedia or create a Wikipedia page that says that. I mean, there was somebody who created Gonzo porn. So why can't I be the guy who's on Wikipedia for multicam porn? I mean, it'd be a nice thing to put on like a tombstone later, you know, whenever that time comes. I think the wheels are already in motion on that. I'm sure it'll be up within a week. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Tilly. Well, I know a lot of people are going to enjoy hearing how everything progresses from the beginning to the end of a VR porn shoot. So I appreciate you giving us all that information. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. It's always good to have a chat. I just hope people find anything valuable or take something valuable out of this. Yeah, that's the most important thing. I'm sure they will. And uh, until next time. I'm hoping we'll have some things to talk about as, as you get back into production and we can get back together and, and discuss what's actually happening. Me too. I hope they don't lock down this bitch again because I'm mean, getting the inklings that that's coming soon. So we just got to shoot as much porn as we can before we have to go hibernate for another three months. <laughs> All right, Tilly. I appreciate it. Appreciate you too. Take care. And thanks again to Tilly for sharing his knowledge of all things VR porn. I do find the multicam feature quite interesting, but for me, it's not so much about having that additional viewpoint to check out when I'm in POV mode. It's more about the idea that a viewer could have the option to fully switch from POV to voyeur at any point in the video. It would definitely be a bit weird to see the other camera rig in the shot, and it would certainly create a whole new set of problems for producers to deal with, but I still think it would be a really cool feature to have especially with the lack of voyeur-style videos in VR right now. But hey, like most VR porn fans, I am just thankful that we have any new content to enjoy right now. Let's hope that the second half of 2020 is much better than the first. Alright, I think that's going to do it for this episode of the VR Pimp Podcast. I thank you for listening, and until next time, this is Scotty Velvet, signing off. <laughs>